Anybody hungry? Yes. I don't know if you know this, but the, the world's you know, largest podcast, most popular podcast is the Joe Rogan Experience. Has 14.9 million subscribers, and every single month, 190 million episodes are downloaded. And uh, not too long ago, Joe Rogan was very hostile towards Christianity, God, the Bible, mocked it, made fun of it, said it's just it's a joke. But recently, he's he's, I think something's going on. Because he is, has invited uh, onto his podcast and he asked amazing questions because he's very inquisitive and interested for answers. But he's been inviting theologians on his show, people who are you know, experts in apologetics of defending the faith and the word of God. Is it true? Can it be trusted? The existence of God. He's, he's been having more and more of these type of conversation. I think God's doing something in his heart and his mind. And he said a couple of interesting quotes recently that really caught my attention. Here's one of them. He said, if you live like there is a God, I feel like you could get better results. Interesting. But this next quote really jumped out at me. He says, I was talking with a friend of mine and talking about how complex the human mind is and how complex life and society is, but there is no real management book, no document that shows you the optimal way to exist and that these are the pitfalls of existing in other ways. I mean, we need a book, we need a document that tells us this is the best way to live. And if you don't live this way, there's pitfalls. If you go the other direction, hmm, I would contend that there is a document, that there is a book. It's called the Bible. All right, if you're new to Bible study, Bible, B-I-B-L-E stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. That's what it is. And in God's word, he tells us, I mean, just look at Proverbs. You know, it's like, all right, here's the pitfalls of lying. Here's the pitfalls of laziness. Here's the pitfalls of managing your money horribly, you know. And then the opposite, if you do it right, you know, you're blessed and this and that. You save and, you know, be careful of the ant. Look at the ant, how he, how he saves. All these things and of, of, of the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. All through uh, Proverbs. Then you see in Galatians Chapter five, okay, now if you just live however you feel like living, here are the results, and they're all bad. But if you follow the spirit of God and you follow him and walk with him, here are the results of that, and it is optimal. All these fruit of the spirit, you want neighbors who model this. You, you want to hire people that model this. You, you want your children to marry someone with the fruit of the spirit. This is optimal and this is pitfalls. And then chapter six of Galatians, it's that, it's that age old, generation old concept. You will reap what you sow. Whatever you plant, you'll reap that for good or for bad. And then you got the teachings of Jesus. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the greatest commandment. And the second one is, and love your neighbors as yourself. 
We would all get along with people and we would get along with them if we would love people the way we want to be loved. In fact, Jesus said, treat others the way you want to be treated. That would go better for you. The Bible is filled. But we see with all these instructions and here's, here's, here's the best way. And if you don't, this is bad for you. It's all filled through the Bible. But every single one of us, Every single one of us in this room and everybody that we know, we have a problem in our DNA. In our DNA, in the human DNA, I don't care who you are, it's a DNA that says, don't tell me what to do. (laughs) Some of you are like, I have a kid just like that. And he's 14. And I am married, Don't, don't point to anybody, okay? We don't like being told what to do. And when we are, we tend to do the opposite. How many of you know someone, not you, but you know of someone like this? Okay, yes. Where did this come from? Why do we think this way? Why do we respond this way when we're told what to do? What we can do, what we can't do. Interesting. Well, if you're joining us, we are continuing in this series called Steak and Potatoes, uh, the book of Romans. Uh, it's, it's steak and potatoes of theology. Who is God? What is his, his standards? What's his judgment? And, but, but then also, what's his, what's his good news? What's his gospel? You know, and God, how he, he rescues us, saves us, this good news, gospel. And, and a few weeks ago, we had, we had 19 people on a Sunday morning say, I, I trusted Jesus for the very first time, and, and he saved me from my sins, and I, you received the good news. And then in chapter 5, Then it kind of pivots in this book. It pivots to now, here's how to live. Here's how how this plays out, that you have been set free from the chains of sin. And so I know in this room that we, we have people who have trusted in Jesus, and we have people in this room, which I think is awesome, and also online that have not yet trusted God. You're like, this whole God thing, Jesus thing, Bible thing, I don't know. But God is doing something, maybe even drawing you because he wants you in his family. And you will have a completely different life like we talked about last week. Old things pass away. Behold, all things are new. You've been set free. And it all happens when you trust in Jesus as your Savior. But then how do I live? How do I live with this? Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 7 if you would. Romans chapter seven. This chapter is one of the most debated chapters in the New Testament. There's been conferences on this. There's been podcasts on this. And, and, and people have all these different opinions. And basically it comes down to this. Here's the debate. Who is Paul writing to in this chapter? Is he writing to believers and followers of Jesus or to unbelievers and non-followers of Jesus? What, who is his audience that he's writing to? I would say, and I'll find out when I'm in heaven if I'm right or not, I believe, based upon the pattern of his writing in this book, that Paul is speaking to both audiences. Speaking to both audiences. One, he's writing from verse 14 on in the first person, present tense. And he's not talking about how he used to be. He's talking about what he is now. And I think for those of us who are believers, when we read chapter seven, we go, oh, I do the same thing. I wrestle with the same thing. Oh, wow. I feel much better because if Paul's struggling with this and he's like, you know, like a New Testament rock star Christian 
okay, all right. But if he struggles, I, I struggle too. And if you are a non-believer, non-follower of Jesus, you can read and people can read this chapter and go, oh, that, I can relate to that. I can relate to the tension in this chapter. But the, the cool thing is, is that for believers at the end of this chapter, there is frustration, but then there's hope. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're going to identify with the frustration. But the cool thing is, is that you now have access, if you trust in Jesus, to the hope of how this chapter ends and how the next chapter starts. So if you're taking notes, here's the, here's the central point. There's a battle raging within each of us. doesn't matter who you are. It's a battle raging inside of us. But it is a battle that we choose who wins. It's a battle, it's real, but we choose who wins this battle. Now, review quickly of chapter six from last week. When you trust in Jesus, positionally, you are secure that you are now a child of God. He's your heavenly father, that won't change. Uh, you're positionally secure. Your, your, your sin debt has been forever zeroed out at the cross and the resurrection. But as we learned last week, this body, this flesh, this shell, I mean the physical body, we still face sin in this world. How many of you are under, uh, you're 25 or younger, okay? 25 or younger, can I see your hand, can I see your hand, all right? Enjoy it while it lasts. 25 or under, like I can, I can do anything, I can eat anything. And then 30 comes. And it's all downhill from there. And then you get older and it aches. Why do, we, why do we feel the effects of aging and more sickness? Because this body is submerged in a sinful culture. Our body still feels the effects of sin. Even if we trusted Jesus as our Savior, every single one of us, believer or non-believer, we face temptation and we give in to temptation and there is a battle raging within. Do I do the right thing or do I do the wrong thing that actually is a little more appealing? And we fight, and there's a fight going on inside and we choose who wins. So let's join, join me in this chapter. We're getting verse seven, chapter seven. Paul writes this, what shall we say then? Is the law, what tells us what to do and not do, is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really is if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, I don't covet, produced in me every kind of coveting. I wasn't even coveting until I was told you couldn't covet. Now I covet everything. I want, I want, she has, I want it. He has, and I want my neighbor, what my neighbor has. It just took that opportunity, produced every kind of coveting for apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, don't do this, do this, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. 
and through the commandment put me to death. It's like, this is not fair. You know, I, I, I was good until I was told what not to do. And when I was told don't do that, guess what I wanted to do? See, there's a battle raging inside of us. Who's going to win? Now, for your notes, it's this. God's law triggers the inner rebel in each, each of us. All right? If you have family members near you, you can look at them and go, you're a rebel. And parents, they can turn back at you and go, and so are you. All right, how many of you have seen a bench or something with a sign, do not touch wet paint? And then when you see that sign, guess what you want to do? Touch it. How many of you are like me? And you've actually touched it and then got in trouble with your, your spouse. Guilty. <laughs> Why did you touch it? The sign said, I, but I wanted to know if it was wet. Okay. All right, how many of you pulled a button that you know you're not supposed to pull, but you did it anyways? I'm guilty. Why? Because it was there. First time we ever got a tour on a submarine back in the 90s. I'm climbing down into it. One of the chief was a, uh, went to our church here, and, and I see all these buttons, and Candy stops, turns around, and goes, don't touch one button, because I could start a nuclear war, all right? Probably not, but I just had to do the tour like this. My, my oldest daughter, Ashley, when she just passed the stage of she learned how to walk, we had this day that was forever burned into my brain. We chose, as mom and dad, we chose to not lock every drawer and every door because we wanted to teach this, this one's okay to open this one's not okay to open. Because if we lock everything and we take the choice away, we, we don't have a chance to, to really teach, you know, obedience or not obedience. We, we didn't make sure any, nothing was like dangerous, but there was one door in the kitchen that was like, Ashley, do not open that door. It's right underneath the sink. Okay, I mean, yeah, there's chemicals underneath there. They're all secure. It wasn't gonna hurt her, but that was the, that was the, that was the deal. Don't open that door. I remember one beautiful sunny Saturday morning, she's walking around, experiencing this new freedom called walking, and she goes and she starts coming toward that door. I'm like, Ashley, she turns. I said, don't open that door. She looked at the door, looked back at me, and smiled <laughs> and started walking closer to the door. And I'm like, Ashley, if you open that door, your hands will get spanked. And she looked at the door, looked back at her father, smiled again, looked at the door, got closer. And while looking at me, she grabs the handle. Where does she get that? Her mom. That's where she gets it. She grabbed the handle. And I did what every good parent does. You pull out the full name card. Ashley Nicole Bandera, if you open that door, your hand will get spanked. She smiled at me, looked at the door, back, forth. You could see the wheels turning. And then she's looking at me. She opens the door. <laughs> and death occurred in that kitchen <laughs> that day. I'll explain that, what it is in just a moment. Some of you are like, what? No, she's still alive. And she has two sons. Awesome! Payback. 
payback, payback. So in verse, verse 11, I think you're going to understand this. You can relate to this. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, don't do this, deceived me. See, disobedience at times is, is, is may, way more appealing than obedience. And I'm sure in this little girl's mind, she was like, surely my dad is not serious. Surely that I could do this and nothing's going to happen to me. We do this as, as teenagers. We do this as adults. We get deceived by sin. Like, I know I shouldn't do it, but nothing's going to happen to me. No one will find out. Other people will face consequences, but I won't. And sin is just lying to us and we're buying it. Because we know this is what we're not supposed to do. The commandment seizes the opportunity and the sin deceives us. And through the commandment put me to death. What died in the kitchen that morning? Ashley's happiness. See, death means separation. She didn't physically die. But she went from happy to crying like, why does my hand sting? It's because she disobeyed. She was separated from happiness temporarily, didn't leave a mark, but she has to understand that there are consequences. It's better, we chose to do that instead of we lock everything up and it's, you know, Fort Knox and they can't do anything. They'll just find other ways to disobey. So she, sep- she was separated from happiness. When we are deceived, and we get a Lord to do what is clearly defined by God's law, don't do, we experience death. Death of innocence, death of obedience, death of good consequences. All that goes out. We're separated from that. Again, God's not trying to be mean. He's trying to be loving to us and help us to live in this life. Pick up verse 12. He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? No, by no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, being told what not to do, to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. I mean, it, it realizes its full potential. We realized, I didn't know that sin would cost me this much. The commandment set that up. Obey. And we said, no, don't tell me what to do. And then we realized, wow, that sin is a big deal. And it cost me more than I realized. See, God's laws are guardrails to help us win in life. God's laws, and good parenting, you know, does this with children, good teachers, good coaches. Same thing is these guardrails help us win in life. See, if you're, if you're in a car or a motorcycle and you're, and you're riding or driving on a very windy road and it's steep and there's inclines and declines and all that sort of stuff, um, if there's no guardrails, that could be a death trap. But guardrails are placed there not to be mean, not to be cruel, not to ruin our fun. They're there because they're a good thing. They're a helpful thing. 
All right, they actually, people care about, you know, drivers or riders not to get hurt or to die physically. So those guardrails are a good, good thing. You see, we don't put the guardrails down in the danger zone. We put them before the danger zone because they're no good. If they're down in the danger zone, you go off the cliff and the guardrail says, you're an idiot. I know that when I came to a sudden stop. Guardrails are placed before the danger. They're there to help us. Now, if we get too close to the line, which some of us are just have the propensity to do, how, how close to the line can I get? And we hit a guardrail with our vehicle, um, we'll probably have a body shop bill. Got to pay for it. But if we ignore the guardrail, we go off the end. If you survive, you have a bigger body shop bill and you have very high hospital bills. Sowing, reaping. So God, a loving heavenly father, regardless of what Satan, the enemy says, you know, he's so mean, he doesn't want you to have fun. No, God is a loving heavenly father, places guardrails in our lives to protect us and to help us and even blessing us. So then there's this battle inside. All right, am I gonna obey or am I not gonna obey? Raging inside and we choose who wins? Now, the next verse, from verses 14 through the end of the chapter, Paul is writing in first person, present tense. He's not talking about before he accepted Christ. He's talking about his situation right now. And I think everybody reading along or listening can go, oh yeah, I identify with that. I relate to that. And Paul is describing his present conflict with indwelling sin in the battle within. So look at verse 14. So we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. Ever asked yourself that question? Why did I do that? For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do it. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Like, yeah, that really hurt. If I go ahead and do what I know I'm not supposed to do, yeah, actually the law was good. As it is, verse 17, it is no longer I myself who I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, kind of like the laws of nature's cause and effect. Although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. See, he's frustrated. Why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? 
Why don't I do what I know I want to do and should do? He's frustrated. Ever been frustrated? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep opening my mouth and saying things and then I have to eat my words? Why do I keep going down and I end up in the same relationship doing the same stupid things? Why do I do that? I said, I'm not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be an alcoholic. And now I, I keep drinking. Anybody tracking with me? It's called being a human being. Now what Paul says, oh, I lost my place. Verse 17, Paul says this, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. Now, growing up, I remember this phrase, the devil made me do it. Anybody heard that before? I didn't do it. The devil made me do it. No, we did it. He, Paul is not writing this like I am, you know, absolved from all responsibility. It's not me. He's saying it's that sin nature. It's that part of me that sin comes natural to me. I'm in hot water and I lie to get out of it. I want something, I steal it or I cheat. Paul is not avoiding personal responsibility. He's illustrating the battle within. So what is sin? If you're a follower of Jesus, like, man, why do I keep doing this? What is sin? Sin is like a squatter in a house they don't own. It's happening a lot in our country today. Sin is like a squatter in a house they don't own. But there was an opening, there was a vacancy, and they got in and they trash the place and they live however they want to live. And then the owner shows up and like, oh my stars, what in the world? And then you got to go through all these hoops and stuff to get your own home back. This is a picture of if we are not careful with sin, it will take over our life like a squatter who doesn't belong and doesn't own this house. If you're a follower, this, this is what happens. That's why we have to always be on guard. What is coming into our eyes? What's coming in our ear gate? What's coming, you know, where we're surrounding ourselves? What situations we put ourselves in? So many times we're just stupid. And then we wonder why, oh, yeah, I gave in to that sin. Well, yeah, because you put yourself in a dumb situation. Sin's like a squatter who doesn't, in a house that don't, they don't own. There's no right, they have no right to be there, but there was an opening, there was a crack. And sin got in. See, Paul is painting this picture, this picture that most of us, if not all of us, can identify with, relate with, the frustration of this inner battle. Who's going to win? There's like a spiritual military strategy from the evil one to tempt us to ignore God and to do what we know is wrong, and we do it, and then we face the consequences. And guess what? In our own power, we can't win. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I really feel for you because you have no access to power to get victory. If you're a believer, you have access to that. You have access to the power to start seeing some victories. Years ago, Ken and I went to um, uh, Ohio in January for a youth conference I was speaking at. And so we stayed with our good friends, Bob and Tammy Vows, who are now um, come, come here and they're on sabbatical. Um, and our, our executive pastor, but we went there, stayed with them. And, 
And uh, we were going out to breakfast. I, I love breakfast. And we went to Cracker Barrel. Anybody like Cracker Barrel? Okay, and we need some out here. Um, I don't need it, but I do need it. And so we went and we pulled up to Cracker Barrel. There's all these cars, but then there's all these horse and buggies. I'm like, what the world? And, and they go, oh yeah, this is Amish country. And I said, oh wow, that's, cra- that's crazy. They're even out at 10 degrees. And so we ate breakfast, we got in the car and we were driving by and we we're seeing horse and buggies on the road and stuff. And we passed this brand new, brand new housing development, two-story houses, very expensive. And I said, well, this is a new, new place. And Bob goes, oh yeah, that whole neighborhood, they're Amish. And I said, but I thought they don't believe in power, you know, and they built these, they get these homes with everything. Bob goes, oh, no, no, no. When they were built, they have all the power they need, but they chose to go into the garage and take the main power switch on the panel and they put it in off position. And they heat their house by fire and they cook over fire. They have access to power, turning it on and flipping a switch and light appears or heat comes on, or stoves come on, but they have chosen to keep it in the opposition. And I thought, that is just like Christians, who they have access to the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. They have access to the freedom we talked about last week to be free from the bondage of sin. And we keep it in the opposition. It's all, it's all wired. Everything's plumbed for it, but we've chosen to keep it in the opposition. So Paul is describing. Now, how many of you heard this phrase, muscle memory? Anybody heard that phrase, muscle memory? It's like you do something, do something, do something. You do it so many times that you don't even think, you just do it, okay? And so uh, for, for a number of years here, I was, uh, I was an assistant coach for basketball and like specialty like shooting, shooting coach. And so I had to teach uh, this thing called muscle memory. And this is my favorite basketball player from my favorite team. It goes back from a little boy. And Steph Curry is the best shooter ever and he has incredible muscle memory. He didn't just say, I think I'll be a great shooter these days. He was in the gym and gym, gym, thousands, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of shots. But it doesn't matter if you do it wrong you won't have success, but he figured out what to do. You got to keep your elbow in, palm up. That's what I taught. Ball, ball on their fingertips. The offhand doesn't push the ball this way or the thumb push it that way. That's why you go up, it guides it, then you let it go and you snap your wrist straight down, point at the rim. And that's how I would teach, teach my players and get muscle memory. But you have to keep doing it. I had two daughters that played. It was fun. Um, and so, and it was, I got extra special, you know, privileges as an assistant coach. I got a key to the gym. And so early in off season and, and before the season, I could go to, to the school, turn on everything, light up the gym. And we got there at six o'clock in the morning and they, and the girls got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shots up, but we would teach muscle memory. You don't jack up threes. When you walk into the gym, you start low and keep your muscle memory, keep go back and back and back and back. And it was fun. My coach, I'm, this is not my words, even though I'm a proud father. My coach that I coached with a lot, the head coach said, Holly was his best shooter ever. And because she was so disciplined for muscle memory, especially on her free throws, she would do the same thing over and over and over again. Even when he would have a fun practice session of speed shooting for free throws, 
she did what she never does. She disobeyed her coach. When I went over there, I'm like, why aren't you doing it as fast as you can? She goes, I'm gonna do the exact same thing like I do in the game. I'm gonna bounce it three times, take the ball, spin it, cock my, my, my elbow in and one, two, down and up. She goes, I'm not gonna mess up my routine. Well, that comes in handy when you're in playoffs and senior year, she, she made 94% from the free throw line. When the game's on the line, we wanted her to get fouled, go to the line, and she, she actually won several games because she goes to the line, money's money on, the, on the money, and net, net, net. Why? Muscle memory. Muscle memory. But here's our problem. Here's my problem. We have muscle memory of sinning all the time. So we just sin. And we just do it. And we're like, why do I do it? Well, because we have muscle memory. And we need to start, how do we rechange and restart doing things? And it's hard. So Paul is frustrated. Why do I don't do what I want to do, I should do, and I do it? I, 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 should, oh wait, I shouldn't do that, and I do it. And the things I should do, I don't. He gets so frustrated in verse, verse 24, he says this, what a wretched man I am, present tense, who will rescue me from this body, right, that is subject to death. This body is still corroded with sin. I'm a wretched man. Every one of us can say that, but because he's a follower of Christ, the next verse provides the hope. Because of faith in Christ. The next verse, he says, but thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the answer. We're not the answer. We can't win our own. But because of Christ, he defeated sin on the cross and the grave, empty grave. He gives us that salvation. He gives us his Holy Spirit that has so many gifts. The Holy Spirit helps us lead us, guide us, direct us, convict us, counsel us, illuminate scripture. I mean, so many things about the Holy Spirit if we would just ask for his help. He gives us, he gives us so many things and it's all because of Jesus. Jesus can start reprogramming our mind. Jesus and, and God's work can help us start getting the right kind of muscle memory. So when we're tempted to do this, we don't do it. When we're tempted to respond, that we, we want to say something that would feel so good, but we know it would be hurtful, then we, we don't open our mouth. We have to train, retrain, and it's through the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So, but what if, what do I do when I sin though? I'm a believer in Jesus. What do I do when I'm a sin? Well, you memorize and apply 1 John 1, 9. When I confess my sin, he is faithful, meaning all, every single time when I, con, when I confess, he is faithful and just to forgive me of that sin and to clean me up from unrighteousness. That verse is not a confession for salvation, that it's a confession for believers for cleansing. That's when I'm like, oh, stupid again. You run to the cross and say, dear Jesus, I confess. And say what it is. I sinned against you in this way. He is faithful and just to forgive us and then he cleans us up. What an amazing gift that we have. My question is, have you taken and received that free gift of salvation that Jesus offers? That he's your savior. He paid for your sins on the cross. He rose again proving he was God. Have you 
received by faith that gift. You can do that today. Maybe you've heard it 10,000 times, but finally, now it registers. Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. My sin separates me from you. By faith, I believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God who died on the cross and he rose again. Please be my savior. Bam, you're in his family. Written into his book of life. Holy Spirit begins to, uh, comes, comes in to, to help you. And now you just gotta grow and rechange bad, sinful muscle memory. And that's why we come to church. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have life groups to help us along the way. So this ending of this chapter, which at times was depressing and frustrating, it ends with, I'm so wretched, but Jesus, but Jesus. And this is why it fit the, it, the, the next chapter starts off so powerful. It says, therefore, based upon what we just said, that Jesus is the answer. Therefore, now, for those who have believed, there is now no condemnation for those who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ as your savior. Because through Christ, the law of the spirit, Holy Spirit, life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have the power. We have access to it. Now we have to choose to use it. So there is a battle raging inside of us, but then we get to choose who wins. And you're like, I know that. I understand that. Why? Because I live that. Barry, how do I choose to win? How, how do I, what do I need to do so that I, I win more than I'm losing? I'll answer that next Sunday. Because <laughs> there's hope. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for the, just the authenticity that Paul is writing with. That's every one of us can identify with. But for those of us in this room who have a saving relationship with a savior called Jesus, we understand that yes, we can still be wretched, but everything changed when we trusted in Jesus. Now we have access to the Holy Spirit to help us win in life. So Lord, I pray that you would draw people into that saving relationship that they would pray and ask you to be their savior for what you did on the cross for their sins and then grow in their faith. Lord, I pray for followers who are like that, that Amish house. They have the power of God hardwired into their home, into their life, but they have chosen to leave it in the opposition. May they, by faith, turn power on and begin to see you work in and through their lives through the power of God and through the power of his word. Thank you God for giving us hope. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen.